This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. So the last, last Sunday, last Sunday in our Summer Psalm series, and if you'd like to get any of those scriptures, we've put you know, eight different sections of scripture to music now over this summer, and those are on um, the Commonwealth City Church, uh, what's that called, the Instagram page and Facebook and all those places. We'd love for you to get to check those out. But um, okay, we've got a lot to cover, and so you guys are going to have to listen really fast. I find that when I have, when I have passages I'm really excited about, you all tend to listen slower. I don't know why you all do that. But um, hopefully you can kind of improve that today because we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. We gotta, and now this is, this is a, a passage that's commonly referred to as the armor of God passage. All right. Now, there's a couple things we've got to do. Before, before we kind of dive into this, one thing I want to tell you is I love, I love finding the gospel in the Old Testament. All right, so what do I mean by that? Like the story the story of this messianic promise that there would be a redeemer and a savior to come, to find that, like, you know, in the Old Testament, the the finale of the Old Testament finishes 400 years before the beginning of the story of Christ. And these psalms are written about 700 years before. We're going to read some prophecies from Isaiah about 700 years before thereabouts. And these, these scriptures... These are written prophetically, meaning God kind of inspired an author to say, hey, here's what's coming. Here's what I want you to expect. And one of the things that's been so fun for me about getting to pause in the summers and to look at the ancient prayer book, the ancient hymn book of the Jewish people, is that when I'm looking at passages that were written a thousand years before Jesus got here, all I find is Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? All right, check this out. So like, Last week I was reading in the Psalm 13 stuff that we just finished last week, which Adam did an amazing job just of diving into what it means for us to be invited to wrestle. You know, one of the things that Psalms does really well is it, it lets us know that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, why, God, have you forsaken me? It's okay to say, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? These statements that we hear, it's okay for us to lean in. He, he's big enough to handle your questions. It's one of the things that the Psalms declare to us. But in the middle of Psalm 13, I just, I love this. I was just thinking about it as I was kind of leaning into the gospel even this morning. It goes through in the first couple verses of Psalm 13 are this like cry to God, like how long, how long, Lord, redeem me. Then, you know, you got three and four that sort of a cry of anxiety and that God begins to respond. It's this reminder of the promise. And then five and six are this ultimate culmination of redemption. And listen to this in verse five, just a, Just a reminder of the way that we see the gospel throughout the text of God's word. In Psalm 13, 5, it says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now, if you were going to read that last statement in Hebrew, here's what it would say. My heart shall rejoice Yeshua. The prepositional phrase in your salvation is literally pronounced Yeshua. If you want to know how to say that in the English language with a transliteration, it sounds like this, Jesus. Literally. It's not like a, oh, that's kind of like what is not. No, no, no. It's literally his name. My heart shall rejoice, Jesus. We're going to take a deep dive into the Messianic promises of the Old Testament today. And we're going to get to see how 
a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up. Man, the prophets, the prophets were declaring boldly what we were to expect. We see that through the life of Paul, through his story, through his, through his, uh, um, his teaching to the church of Ephesus and now to us by default of what it means to be a people that put on the whole armor of God. Now, as we talk about putting on the whole armor of God, one thing that I got to kind of correct that the Lord kind of had to correct in my own heart this week was it's really easy to think about the armor like a checklist. You know what I mean? Checklists are very, that's a really good, like, kind of American, you know, sort of thing to do with our Christian life. Like, ooh, I got these things. All right, I got the six pieces of the armor. How am I doing today? I'm four out of six. Not bad. That's like 67%. It's pretty good. Hall of Fame numbers in baseball. You know, like, no, but that's not what it means. It's not a checklist. All this is, the armor of God, every one of these pieces we're going to see is found in the Old Testament, not worn by saints, not worn by the people of God, not worn by the faithful. They're worn by the Father. And when we talk about the armor of God, what we're talking about is not just the armor that the Christians get to put on. What we're saying is we're borrowing a better armor. This is the armor of God, okay? And as we put on the armor of God, we're just putting on his attributes. Remember one of my favorite Old Testament stories. It's probably my favorite Bible story from childhood is David and Goliath. And if you ever get a chance, I would, if you've got like an, a favorite like story that you haven't read in a long time, it's really fun to go back as an adult and to read the text from scripture because you'll see these things in there that you're like, how did I miss that? You know, first Samuel 17, story of David and Goliath. And it's beautiful because you've got, you know, I always knew like, oh yeah, David's a little bitty dude. He goes out there against the big Goliath and he, you know, he, he, he beats him and puts the rock in between his head, and he actually decapitates him at the end. They kind of left that part out in my childhood stories. You know, but like you go back and you look, you look at this old text, and you find there's all these other things. Like there's Saul, who is the king of Israel, who would shortly after this become David's father-in-law and then become his arch nemesis. And Saul is the leader of the people of Israel, and he was picked for a number of reasons. One, the main reason, the primary reason that Saul was picked was because he was a head taller than everyone else. That's it. He's just big, which I think really is a fantastic criteria for leadership. <laughs> Personally, as a six-foot-nine male, I really like that. But, but they picked Saul because he was huge. That was it. He was just, oh, you're big. You're probably going to be good as a king. All right. You know, hopefully, since we've learned some things, maybe not much. But uh, Saul, they pick him as king. He's put in leadership, and God blesses him, puts a spirit on him, favors him, blesses the people of Israel through picking Saul as king. But at this point in the story, when Goliath has come before the nation of Israel in the valley of Elah, Saul has been removed from favor. And the Spirit of God has left Saul. And at this point, at this point, it's interesting because you would have had, there's a, a man that comes out as a champion, all right? And so instead of the two armies having to fight and a lot of blood being shed and a lot of people dying, they said, why don't we send out one person apiece and then the victory is just decided by this combat between two people, so a lot of people don't have to die. So they send out Goliath of Gath. He's huge. Some people think he's probably about a little over nine feet tall. When you read about the description of his armor, I mean, it's the kind of thing that, like, I couldn't even lift. He's just this unbelievable warrior. Now, if, if you're going to be picking somebody in that time period to go out before 
before the largest warrior on earth at the time. You would have looked around at your army and you would have looked for one of two men. You would have looked either for the leader, the boldest one, like the leader of the army, or you would have looked for the tallest person in the army, the largest, either the leader or the largest. In, in the army of Israel, both of those people were one guy. They were Saul. And for 40 days, Saul sat in passivity in a tent until finally a high school-age kid who is ruddy and handsome is what we know about him, who is literally just shows up to the battlefield to deliver cheese. You don't believe me? Look it up. First Samuel 17, he comes to deliver cheese to his brothers. That's what it says, all right? He comes to bring cheese, and he hears Goliath talking about how he's going to defy the armies of the living God. And he says, nah. And he goes in before Saul. And Saul does something really interesting. He says, here, put my armor on. Now, this is unique because Saul knows good and well he's the one who should be walking into the valley. He knows it should be him. And he sat in passivity for 40 days because the Spirit of God has been removed from him. And he knows that if he walks out there, he's not going to make it out alive. And he waits till a 17-year-old-ish kid comes in and just is almost like, a, I just want a little bit of justification. I just want to feel like I had some involvement and input. Here, just wear my armor so that at least it looks like some representation of me is on the battlefield. And David says, it doesn't fit. And in essence, what he invites us into is this recognition, he had a better armor on. Do you see that? He had a better armor on. And it didn't look like much. It allowed him to be agile, picks five stones from a brook. Some, uh, some historians think it's because Goliath was um, assumed to have been one of five brothers. And so David was saying, well, I think I just need one stone apiece in case the brothers try to come and get revenge. And he goes out and he faces him and he defeats him. And it's a story of faithfulness. But it's also a story that reminds us, that reminds us, guys, we are offered a divine armor. We're offered a divine armor. It's a borrowed armor, and just like the first verse in Ephesians 6.10, it says that we get, to, we get to put on his might and the power of his might, finally be strengthened by the Lord, by his vast strength. And we put on the armor of God. Now, the one thing that I, I've always thought was really interesting, so it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, principalities, authorities in the heavenly places. And this is, this is strange because there's other places in, in the New Testament where it talks about us kind of wrestling against people. There's, you know, we fight against our own flesh, things like this. But it, it's unique because what I find is, I, I've noticed this in my own heart um, pretty painfully, even lately in some ways, that, guys, the enemy is unseen and the enemy is real. Now, right now in the Church of the United States, when they take statistics, the average believer does not believe that Satan is real. The average Christian in the United States, when they take polls, now, how they determine who they're polling that's a Christian is up for a, a lot of discussion, but, but they, when they take these polls, they, uh, I think the last, the, um, the last numbers are about 55% 
of people that would sit in most churches would say that Satan is not real, that he's more metaphorical, he's symbolic of evil and darkness in the world. And guys, it's very, very important that we recognize that. I saw this when I was, I was reading a story in the gospel one time, and I saw that there was a, a boy who was shaking, and he was convulsing, and Jesus goes over, and it says that not only did he heal him, it says he cast a demon out of him. And I was reading it, and I'm not lying. This is the first thought that went through my mind. Oh, Jesus didn't know about epilepsy yet. That's what went through my head. Oh, Jesus didn't know about it yet. Oh, poor thing. And I was like, What? The Word of God just said this was demonic. And I wanted to say, oh, no. But now my modern mind has progressed to the point that I am aware of epileptic fits. No, no. Like, the Word of God is right. I am wrong. If the option is ever between God and Kurt, pick God. All right? That's a good, that's good advice every time. All right. Now, the thing is about this that I've realized, like, guys, it's important for us to realize that the enemy is real. And the enemy is unseen. And that, like when it comes to these battles that we're fighting, like, I've noticed this even in my own, um, there's times when I get frustrated with people. And one thing that my mom has been really good about reminding me about is like, Kurt, lost people are supposed to act like lost people. When somebody, when a lost person acts like a saved person, that's wrong. That's bearing improper fruit. And when a lost person acts like a lost person, they're actually proving the Bible is right. That like when, we, when we're wrestling, like when we have these, these issues or, you know, I think obviously the most, um, I guess the most, uh, the most overt example I could get would probably be from politics. And we won't deep dive too much into that. But like when I, I see these debates and these wrestlings between different perspectives and thoughts and it's like, Guys, we need to wrestle, recognize we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. And like when you're angry at a person, you're also angry at the fact that four generations earlier, there was a great-great-grandfather that began making decisions that caused habitual patterns to exist within that person's life that changed everything about their default modes and responses in their minds. Like it's, we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood. Like there is a lot going on. And for us as believers, we get to sit back and say, Lord, I get to view the world differently. I get to view the world differently than my, maybe than the tendency of my cultural context. And I get to say, the word of God is unconditionally right. The enemy is real and the enemy is unseen. And so how does he tell us to battle him? We put on armor. Now, I love this. This was really fun for me, guys, to, to dive into the armor of God. And honestly, even a lot of it changed some this morning. There's a, it's weird for me. Like, I'm not, I, I'm not like a, I don't feel like a preacher. You know, I've told you all this multiple times. But I, you know, I'm fine with preaching. I love it. I love getting up here and just diving into a text and spending a ton of time with it during the week and getting to be like, man, these are the things that got me most hype in the Word of God this week. That's, like, that's awesome. But there's also this kind of, like, weight and responsibility of, like, honoring God's Word. And even further than that, like, it says later on in the New Testament that when you speak, speak as though you're speaking the oracles of God. I'm like, well, thanks for setting the bar so low, Lord. Jeez, how the heck am I supposed to, like, the oracles? I don't even know what an oracle is. What is that, you know? Is that from, like, a little mermaid? What's going on here? You know, but, like, when I'm, when I'm preaching, there's this there's this weightiness to it. And, 
And I've realized that it's really beautiful because what I've been asking the Lord is not like, God, let me say some really cool things that, that stick, you know, and let, let me say something that's really encouraging to this community of people today. Let me change something, say something that changes hearts. It's like, no, the only responsibility I have is to speak in such a way that the facial expression of heaven is given an excuse to delight. And so what I'm hoping is that as I get to dive into this armor, that like it's been this reminder to me all week long, man, to remember like, man, this honor, it's, this armor is just him. It's just him. It's just these attributes of our father. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to walk through where we find all these pieces of the armor in the Old Testament, where specifically it says that God wears these himself and give us some, um, some admonition to wear them as well. So the first thing is the belt of truth. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says that he wears a belt of righteousness and a belt of faithfulness. And that belt of faithfulness is the, in the Hebrews, this word, um, or in, in the Greek, in the, um, um, the Septuagint, when they put the Old Testament into Greek, it was the word aletheia, which is a word that Andrew's talked about a bunch up here. It's a, it's a word that means, it means truth. It means the absence of false, the absence of untruth. And he wears this belt. All right, now the cool thing about the belt of truth is the breastplate of righteousness, it depends on the belt. That breastplate that they would wear, it like, it had to rest on the belt. And what the belt did, what the belt did was it held everything together. So if you didn't have the belt on, then your robes were flowing. The breastplate was just kind of like going to be swinging about. Like everything was held together. And what the belt did was it allowed for mobility. It allowed you to be mobile and agile on the battlefield. It kept you from being hindered. All right? Now, when it comes to the reason he calls it the belt of truth, what does it mean, the belt of truth? And one thing that uh, um, we get to spend time with a small group of people that have been studying through these texts together over the summer. And Connor Coyle studied out this belt of truth this week. And one thing she said that I thought was really beautiful, she said, man, it's important that we filter life through truth rather than feelings. How true is that? To let your life be filtered through truth rather than what you feel. And I love it. Like, just, just right back to me reading the story of a, of, of a child that's convulsing in front of Jesus and that he removes a demon, and I would be prone to be like, well, I don't know, Lord. I don't want to... I don't want to be that weird Christian that just jumps quickly to assumptions of the demonic all the time. It's like, no, Kurt, like you're, you're living life on a battlefield. And that battlefield is full of unseen principalities, powers. Like that, it's real. And here's the great thing about truth. If you believe truth, that's wonderful. If you don't believe truth, you know what truth still is? It's still truth. It's truth with or without you. And the, the great thing about the truth is that Jesus didn't just tell the truth. He is truth. That's a pretty big difference. Jesus doesn't tell the truth. Truth is whatever Jesus happens to tell. Does that make sense? He is, that's what it means in Colossians. He's preeminent. He is before. All right? He created truth. Truth when. Jesus has an opinion, truth comes before his throne, bows down, and submits to it. That's what it means for us to say Jesus is truth. 
Truth is not something Jesus tells. Truth is something Jesus is. Next piece, breastplate of righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 and 17, um, it gives us this really, really amazing messianic promise. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Isaiah today because um, all but one of these pieces of armor show up prophetically in the story of Isaiah. Isaiah 59, 16, and 17. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth is stumbled in public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. I love that. Oh, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So he puts on this breastplate of righteousness. And then, and then by the arrival of his son, by Jesus coming to earth, being incarnational, that's what it means for him to leave heaven, come to earth, to take on humanity while still being 100% divinity, that he comes down to this earth. He takes the sins that you and I committed. And just like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to become your sin. To become your sin. That we might become His righteousness. To take off the filthy rags that are enslaved to whatever your behavior and inclinations are in the flesh. And to say, put on the righteousness of God. An imputed righteousness. The old old commentators would often call this an alien righteousness. Meaning it was outside of us. It was extraterrestrial. Our righteousness. Borrowed from divinity. Now, like we said, our righteousness rests on the truth, that belt of truth, this imputed righteousness, that what we're saying is that God sees us in Christ through a Jesus lens. All right? That's weird. That's weird because, like, it's just strange because even lately I've been wrestling with this. Like, Lord, it just seems like it goes almost too far. Like, it seems like grace has just been given to us in a way that's so easy to abuse and take advantage of. But he knows. He knows that when we really, when we really lean in, in faith, to this understanding that we have a righteousness that we could never achieve by our own behavior, you know what it compels us to do? To please the one who made us righteous. That's it. It's right back to Psalm chapter 1 that we talked about a few weeks ago. Psalm chapter 1 verse 2. I said it's, it's the place that I feel like all religious history kind of hinges upon. When it said, when it talks about the righteous person, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. Everything up to that point had been about his obedience was to the rules of the Lord. And suddenly, David gives us a better and more intimate and a relational understanding of obedience, that our delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, we meditate night and day. We feast on it. All right. It's a borrowed righteousness, which leads us to the third piece. And this has been, this one was the one that was actually most fun for me to kind of wrestle with. It was that we put on gospel boots. 
That's what one of the commentators I was reading said. We put on gospel boots that like we get to these feet shod with the gospel of peace. All right, Isaiah 52, it talks about this. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It tells you how to have beautiful feet. And then right after this, it says, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. What watchmen did is they would sit on the wall. And they would look for signs of the enemy. Okay? And they would see, and they would look out, and they would see, like, oh, man, is there there a threat approaching? And a lot of times, the watchmen were the heralds of bad news, to be honest. It was, the enemy's approaching. The enemy's coming. Everybody, arm yourselves. Get ready. Sometimes, when you were in the middle of a battle, you were in the middle of threat, and you needed help, and you were hoping that somebody would come to your aid and there would be reinforcements, then you got to be the bringer of good news. And sometimes in the thick of battle, when everything looked like it was up against you, the watchmen would get to be on the walls, and suddenly they'd see help has come. And they got to be the heralds of euangelion, which means the good news, the gospel the heralds of good news. And the one thing, the one thing that's really important to know about this, all right, what this means is the gospel, it makes you ready to run. And what changed and shifted for me when I was reading this was that I think my whole life I thought about the armor of God and I thought about there's five protective pieces and one offensive piece. And I just thought about being on a battlefield. I thought, okay, you're on the battlefield and you're ready to war. And you're like, you know, you got your, your breastplate of righteousness that, that protects this understanding that you have of who you are in Christ. You've got the belt of truth that everything kind of rests upon. It holds it all together. Jesus is truth. I got that. You know, the feet shot with the gospel piece is like, yeah, the gospel is important. And then like, yeah, shield of faith. I've got the helmet to protect. But what I didn't realize is this is all designed around the understanding that we as the people and saints of God are not sitting back behind a shield. We are mobile. And what the gospel does is you are not standing still just in hand-to-hand combat on the battlefield. You're on the battlefield to run, to let people know, hey, There's a way out to let people know, hey, look up. Just like we've talked about from John chapter 3, from Hebrews 12 to look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Like we are intended to be mobile. The gospel of peace, the gospel makes us ready to run. It makes us ready to run. The very next section right after Isaiah 52, 7 and 8, right after this, is a section that is titled, He was pierced for our transgressions. And it's the ultimate messianic passage in all the Old Testament, the end of Isaiah 52 into chapter 53, where it says that it talks about Jesus literally being pierced. It says that like by, our, by his chastisement, we've, we've gotten peace, that we are going to be made right with the Father. The shield of faith. The shield of faith is really unique because, uh, I, you know, for a long time I thought, like, okay, shield, it's like the, there was this one that was like a Roman shield that was about two feet in diameter, and you would kind of hold it up, and you would wage war with it and stuff. And then there was a different shield that would have, that was kind of more like a, more like a wall. It's more like a mobile wall. 
And the shield it's talking about here is not the hand-to-hand combat shield. It's the wall. And this, this shield was made of wood and covered in metal. And it was designed specifically because one of the most powerful devices ever invented in combat was when they began to put pitch at the end of arrows and they would light it on fire. And so you would have these wooden shields and suddenly you'd get these arrows with pitch on them and they'd be lit on fire and then your whole shield would light up and these flaming arrows became a devastating force in ancient warfare. And so they had this shield that was designed to just deflect. It was made of metal and they'd just bounce off and they'd sit and they'd, they'd putter out on the ground. And it was this shield that was not just, it wasn't necessarily meant to be like in hand-to-hand combat. It was just a wall. It was like a complete guard before and behind. Guys, this is the shield of faith. The importance here is that faith deflects. And again, this is all towards a greater end. And it's that you could be a person that runs. That you can be a person who is heralding good news on the battlefield. It deflects. The last piece here before, before the offensive weapon is the helmet of salvation. Again, we heard about the helmet of salvation, Isaiah 59, 16 and 17. All right, this is, what this reminds us is this, that the mind is the battlefield. All right, obviously that's one of the most important things that we, when we read Ephesians 6, I feel like it's kind of hard to get away from that is this understanding that like, I mean, there's going to, there's a war being waged and typically, the most important place that you're ever going to wage war is the space between your ears. Now, we see this throughout the New Testament, throughout the writings of Paul, but my favorite one, the one that I was really, man, just kind of rest on even this morning as I was praying for you guys is from Colossians chapter 3. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and you also will appear with glory, put to death, therefore, those are earthly in you. And I was thinking about this passage. I was like, all right, like, for you have died. You have died. And I was, I was talking this week with Travis Rose, and he was, uh, he was talking about um, hearing a sermon where somebody had talked just about the reality of hell and how, like, just how easy it is to live as if it's, distant or metaphorical or you know just kind of this far off like oh yeah I guess that's I guess that's true yeah people are going to go into eternity but he said a hundred thousand people before the end of the day will perish and spend an eternity in hell and he said that and I could tell there was almost this this weird like the very first time I heard it it was almost like a a hesitation like nah don't, no, don't, that's just, you don't want to be too emotionally compelled. I don't know what that is. I don't know why that exists within me, but there was this almost like trying to sit back and make it cerebral so that I didn't have to feel the weight of it, if that makes any sense. And it was like the Lord just invited me, no, like lean into that. Lean in. Because there's a reality that like, guys, every single person that you're ever going to drive by in a car, walk by in a supermarket, the people you'll know and the people you don't know, they're all going to live forever in one of two places. Either if they know Jesus, they will live for all eternity in His presence. Or if they don't, they will spend an eternity in hell. 
Now, there's something in, our, in the modern kind of American um, human psyche that wants to hear that and be like, no, no, God wouldn't do that. He, he would and he has. And, and here's the important thing about that is that like for us to be people that put the armor on and become kingdom people that live life on the battlefield and run with the gospel of peace, guys, it, it becomes all the more important. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, man, like set my mind on things above. Like I was like, Lord, it's so easy for me to get lazy on the battlefield. I, was, I saw that line, the, for you have died. And I was thinking about, we were, we were talking about the other day, like the, you know, the old, uh, the old Tim McGraw song. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Come on. Live like you were dying. You ever heard the song? Live like you were dying. Yeah, something like that, whatever. Actually, if you listen to the original version, it's probably even worse than that. It was, I didn't like that song. And it, anyway, so Tim McGraw sings a song, and he, t- he says in there, like, that if you, if you live like you're dying, then you're going to, like, go skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, and go 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I thought, that sounds like the worst way to go out. Like, why would I? That's terrible. Yeah, yeah, you know you're going to die. I might as well spend a few weeks in a hospital bed from trying to ride a bull. No, no, Tim, this is awful advice. Please think this through. But the thing I was realizing, I was like, man, no, the, the thing that Scripture gives us, though, is not to live like you're dying. It's live like you're already dead, which is way better advice. Because if you live like you're already dead, you're not going to go bull riding, and you're not going to try skydiving as a response to the fact that you're already dead and you're free. No, you're going to preach the gospel. And if you live like you're already dead, you're going to run. You're going to run. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we, we talked about Hebrews 12, 2 a second ago. It talks about looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Before it says that, it says that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And so because of that, because of the fact that there are literally billions of people already living vividly, in the reality and the awareness of eternity because they're in the middle of it and they're watching and they're cheering you on that like because of that, we want to lay aside every weight and the sin that entangles us. And this doesn't just mean stop sinning. It means lay aside sin and even things that might not be sin that keep you from running as fast as you possibly can. Run. Run with endurance the race set before you. Looking to Jesus. The gospel of salvation invites us to the battlefield. Because as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about just asking the Lord, like, hey, make it real to me that earth is short and heaven is long. Like, you realize that simple statement, guys, I mean, if you just sit and meditate on that for three minutes at the beginning of every day of your life, you'll never be the same again. Earth is short and heaven is long. Because you and I, It's going to be up on the screen here in a second. You will reap for billions of centuries what you sow for a few decades. Do you realize that? Like we're going to spend all eternity looking back on the brief period of time. You are going to live forever. Eternity is written on your heart. That's what scripture says. Every single person in here at some point, in some point in the distant future, you will all have a one millionth birthday. Do you know that? For real, all of you, you're all going to turn a million. I will too. You'll turn two million and three billion and 47 trillion. Every single one of you, me included, 
lost, saved, all of us, it will never end. And we only get this blip. I'm talking like, guys, it, it, just a blip. Some of us get a short period of time. Some of us get a longer period of time. But if you live to be the longest human, if you live longer than any human being that has ever existed on earth, if you somehow find a way, and because of scientific discovery, you get to live 970 years and you beat Methuselah, it's a blip. A blip. And we're going to spend all eternity, all eternity bearing fruit, bearing fruit of what we do here. And I was just thinking about this this week and was like, Lord, I don't know if there's going to be any such thing as leaning too far into that reality. 100,000 people before the end of the day are going to enter eternity without Jesus. It means that by the end of this week, the population of Lexington, the population of Lexington will go to hell twice by the end of the week. And I was thinking, man, it's just like, Lord, I've got, I've got to learn. I've got to learn what it means to be a man that lives with eternity in mind. The very last piece of, this, of the armor that we get is this divine armor. It's the sword of the Spirit. Isaiah 49 is a beautiful messianic promise. It says that Messiah's words are going to be like a sharp sword. So we've got five devices for defense and one for offense. The word of God is singular and it is sufficient. And I want to encourage you, use it like Jesus used it. And this is even as I was praying this morning, this is like what it felt like the invitation from the Father was. Kurt, greet half-truths with a whole gospel. Greet half-truths with a whole gospel. Hebrews 4.12, it talks about the word. It says that it's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides, pierces even. And even this morning as we were sitting at the altar before, I, was, I just felt like the Lord invited me like, Lord, don't just, don't, just use your word, don't just use the sword of the Spirit today on me like a scalpel. Run me through. Divide. Soul and spirit, bone and marrow, like cut to the deep places of me. Father, pierce me. Pierce me through. This all kind of concludes and culminates with prayer. Where he four times uses the phrase all. I said pray at all times. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And one thing I want us to know is this, like prayerless Christianity is powerless Christianity. And everything that we're called to do by putting on the armor of God, all right, this is, now this isn't, again, this is not supposed to be something like, all right, well, okay, how's my, well, I got kind of four out of, you know, I got the, I got half the, the pieces of the armor on. No, no, this is, this is what divinity gives us. That if you walk in the spirit, you will be a person that is armored always. Romans 13, 11 through 14 kind of brings it all together like this. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Jesus. I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you, hey guys, kind of go through this is important. You want to make sure you 
put on faith and you admit truth. No, just all we're talking about is putting him on. Just wear him. Wear the provision of the cross and the resurrection like an armor. And recognize that every piece of this armor is just him. Truth, righteousness, salvation. He's the word made flesh. Our faith is in him and through him. He is the gospel of peace. He is its prince. There is salvation in no one else. It's Acts 4.12. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, the ultimate culminating invitation for you and I is pretty simple. And I, I love when I get to kind of the end of a of diving into a text of Scripture, and I realize that, this, that the commissioning is the same for the saints and the lost. And it's pretty much this. It's a, like, if you're somebody in here who's never met Jesus, who's never gotten to know him, that you hear about, you've heard me talk about this, this God who's given us an armor and this, this gospel, which is the story of God leaving heaven, coming to earth, recognizing that the consequence and punishment for all the sin of humanity was death eternally, permanently, forever, justifiably, and that he came in and he took sin from us. He died the death we should have died, got into a grave we would have been stuck in forever, rose up from it, and then invited us to live in the victory that he now gets to live and rest in. That story, because it's if you're somebody in here and you've never met Jesus, it's the best news you've ever heard, whether you know it or not. Because truth's truth with or without you. And if you're somebody in here who doesn't know him, then I encourage you, invite you. Man, go to him in prayer. And just say, hey God, I want you. And if you don't, I heard, heard this awesome old theologian one time. He was talking to a man who didn't know Jesus yet. And he said, do, do you want um, do you want to get saved? And he said, no, but I want to want to. He said, I think God can work with that. <laughs> and they prayed. And sure enough, the Lord woke up a wanting in him. So if you're somebody in here who doesn't even know what you should want, ask God, say, God, give me a yearning for you. Now, if you're somebody in here and you know the Lord and you walk with him and all these truths are things that are evident in your life, then I got great news for you. Today is the day of your salvation today and go to him the same way the same way and just say Lord I want to want you give me a deeper yearning for you than I've ever had before I've got three questions up here if you want to kind of just wrestle with the text later on I'd invite you to open Ephesians 6 um, just in your quiet time and to ask what's it mean to put them on what's it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ like armor which piece of the armor has been most evident in your journey with God and if you set your mind on things above and live with eternity in view, what would change most in your life? Hey, Jesus, as we get to, as we get to finish up, Lord, what it means to, man, to sit here and think about, think about living with eternity in view. Lord, it's crazy because I'm, even when I say it out loud, I'm like, man, I can tell I believe that completely. And yet I also know there's a lot further for my faith to go and understanding that I will inevitably at some point walk out of my mortality. My mortality, like you say in 1 Corinthians 15, will be swallowed up by life. I will walk out of this world 
and I will spend the rest of my eternity getting to look back. Now, it's easy for me right now to be like, oh, I'll look back in shame, wishing I'd done more. And I know there's not going to be any shame in heaven. I know that's not going to be the reality. I'm not trying to say that. I just know that there's not... I, I can't imagine there won't be some semblance of wishing on that side that I had given you more of my heart on this side. can't imagine there's not some understanding on that side of eternity wishing that I had given you all of my heart on this side. And so, Lord, I ask you, make us people that live with eternity in mind. Make us people that run. Make us people that live lives of urgency and do in us the thing that we cannot do in ourselves. Give us a want to. Give us a want to, Jesus. We love you.